we are going into our um, sermon on the book of John, chapter 10, verses 22 to 42. Um, I am going to read and expound, read and expound. I'm not going to read the whole thing through first. I'm just going to get right into it. It says here, at that time, the feast of dedication took place at Jerusalem. It was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple in the colonnade of Solomon. First, let me just say something here about this feast of dedication. Um, what was this feast? You might, you might feel kind of unfamiliar with that one. Uh, I don't blame you because it's not in the Old Testament. It's not one of the feasts of um, the Mosaic Law. It's a relatively new feast. Uh, it, it happened, this is how it happened. In 167 B.C., so about 200 years before the ministry of Jesus, there was a Syrian ruler. His name was Antiochus Epiphanes. Some of you may remember your, your history here. Or, um, uh, he came and he conquered Jerusalem. He was a Syrian emperor, a Syrian ruler, and he conquered Jerusalem. And he was harsh. He was unbelievably harsh to the people of Israel. Uh, if you had any piece of uh, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, you could be killed for that. You were not allowed to circumcise your children. Uh, all males were supposed to be circumcised on the eighth day. He did not allow that. And the, the thing that really, really pushed everything over the top is that he went into the temple, the Jewish temple, the Holy of Holies, and he set up a statue of Zeus in the Holy of Holies in the temple. Not only that, he sacrificed a pig on the altar. A pig is, as you know, not kosher, right? All beef franks, you know what I mean? Not kosher, no, no, no pigs. Uh, he sacrificed that on the altar in Israel, in the temple. So this, this guy was just sticking it to the Jews as hard as anybody could. Eventually, the Jews could not handle this anymore. They began to revolt. They began to rebel. They, they employed guerrilla warfare. And um, led by a guy named Judas Maccabeus, you may, you may know that name, uh, known as Judas the Hammer, they actually overthrew Antiochus's rule. They kicked him out. They recaptured the temple, and they reconsecrated the temple. They, they cleansed it. They <coughs> got rid of the statue of Zeus and all that stuff. They purified it. They did everything. And, and that's what this feast is called, the Feast of Dedication, because they rededicated the temple back to the God of Israel. That's what this feast was. And, and ever since that happened, this became a regular part of the life of Israel. So um, they celebrated for eight days, and they said, every year we got to keep celebrating this amazing victory and deliverance that, that God gave them. Uh, you may know this feast by its familiar name that we hear now. It's called Hanukkah. So if you ever heard of Hanukkah, and you know what Hanukkah was, what's that all about? It's like Jewish Christmas, right? What's going on? What's Hanukkah? That's what Hanukkah is. It's the Feast of Dedication. So Jesus was here in Jerusalem during this feast. Now, in verse 24, it says, So the Jews gathered around him and said to him, How long will you keep us in suspense? If you are the Christ, tell us plainly. <clears throat> this is one of the big questions here. One of the main questions of the book of John is, who are you? Who is Jesus? If you are the Christ, tell us, who are you? That's the purpose of this gospel. John wants us to know who Jesus is. But Jesus answered them, I told you, and you do not believe. 
This is, uh, this is like a summary statement, a, 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 a snapshot of Jesus' relationship with the religious leaders. Who are you? I told you already, if I can insert already. I already told you, but you don't believe. <clears throat> Ever since chapter 2, when Jesus went into the temple and cleared it, his interactions and this conflict with the religious leaders was, was, was happening and brewing and getting worse and worse from chapter 2 all the way up to here to chapter 10. It's the story of the first half of the book of John. I already told you, but you don't believe. And, and this passage is really symbolic because it's actually the last um, interaction that Jesus has with these religious leaders before he leaves he leaves Jerusalem for a while, and the next time he comes back would be to go to the cross. So it's like a very summarizing thing kind of happening here. Who are you? I already told you guys, but you guys don't believe. Now, Jesus clearly did tell them that he is God. He made this clear. As much as they make it seem like you're not being clear, you're, you're not being straightforward with us, Jesus did already tell them that he is divine. He is God. In chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus said, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. People thought he was talking about the building. He was talking about his own body. He was saying, kill me, and on the third day, I will be raised up again. That's not mortal talk. Human beings can't talk like that. In chapter 3, he said, no one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. He's saying literally there, I came from heaven. That is not mortal man talk. He also said, I am living water. Anybody who drinks of me will never thirst again. He said, I'm the bread of life. If you eat of me, my flesh, you will never hunger. He said, anybody who comes to me and drinks, rivers of living water will flow from your belly. He said, I am the light of the world. Anybody who believes in me will not walk in darkness. The Jews understood what he was saying. In chapter 5, verse 18, it says the Jews were trying to kill him. Why? Because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. They understood that Jesus was saying that he was God. That's why they wanted to kill him for blasphemy. It happened again in chapter 8. Jesus said to them, Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And the Jews, they responded to him, You are not yet 50 years old, and you have seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. I am. The, 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 the name that God used to reveal himself to Moses at the burning bush when Moses said, who are you? Who should I tell the Israelites you are? Who sent me? He said, tell them the I am sent to you. I am. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. And what did they do? They picked up stones to throw at him. They wanted to kill him. They clearly understood that Jesus said that he is divine. He's God. Anybody who says, no, nah, that Jesus... He's a, he was a, a teacher, a good person, but he never actually claimed to be God. I don't think they've read the Gospels carefully because Jesus' enemies, the religious leaders, those who were supposed to know the Bible more than anybody else, clearly understood what he was saying. Jesus already told them, I told you, 
but you would not believe. So what did he do? He said, not only did he tell them, but he says, the works that I do in my father's name bear witness about me. So we have the combination here of Jesus's words and his works. Not only did Jesus declare to the people who he was, that he is the Messiah, he's the son of God, he is God, he's the divine one, but also through the works that he did, it demonstrated, it was a testimony, a witness to the people that he truly is the son of God. Jesus turned water into wine. He healed the sick. He he healed a man who was an invalid, paralyzed, and couldn't walk. He healed a man uh, who was blind from birth. Jesus walked on water. He turned five loaves and two fish into so much food that it fed 20,000 people. He did that not only once, but he did it a second time. At times, it says the entire countryside brought all their sick to him. And it says he healed them all. He healed everybody who came out to him. And in the next chapter, we will see he even raised the dead. He raised Lazarus. When, when John the Baptist's disciples came to Jesus to ask him if he was the Messiah, it's like, hey, are you, are you, are you the Messiah or what? Are you the one? Or when are you going to do your deliverance thing? This is what Jesus said. He said, go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. How did Jesus respond? Did he say, yes, I am? He didn't. He said, look at what I do. The proof is in the pudding. I have been doing everything that the Old Testament prophecies said the Messiah would do. So don't just listen to what I say. Look at what I do. And the greatest work of all, friends, of course, is the resurrection of Jesus himself that he did not just die like any mortal man, but death couldn't hold him. He came out of the grave on the third day. He was resurrected from the dead, which proved that he is the son of God. This is why John wrote this book. He wanted you to know everything Jesus said, as well as everything Jesus did, so that you could believe he is the Messiah. I've quoted this before several times, but I'm doing it again because this is like a conclusion summary statement of the purpose of John's gospel. Now, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John's saying, this is why I wrote this. So you can know what he did. And it proves that he is the son of God. In fact, he did many other signs. And and just just to make sure you didn't miss that, at the end of John, he says, now there are also many other things that Jesus did were every one of them to be written. I suppose that the world itself could not contain the books that would be written. I, I imagine John there as he's trying to write his gospel. He's like, oh my gosh, which one do I add? Which one do I include? Man, this book is getting longer and longer and longer. I just can't include everything, but I want you to know that if I were to write it all down, it'd be ridiculous. <laughs> it'd be ridiculous. There's no way I could write it all down. Jesus has done so much, so many miracles. He wants us to know that he's the son of God. You know, the, um, the famous British philosopher, uh, the atheist Bertrand Russell was once asked, um, if, if one day he actually found himself standing before God on judgment day, so in other words, he's wrong, right? He's standing before God 
And God said to him, why didn't you believe in me? What would you say? Bertrand Russell shot right back. He said, I would say, not enough evidence, God. Not enough evidence. That's what he says he would say to God. But is that true? Is there not enough evidence? Has God not shown us that his son is the Messiah, that he is to be believed? He absolutely has through his words and his works recorded in the Bible. Look, I know some people in our modern society may say, oh, come on. You expect me to believe the Bible? You're using that as your proof? I mean, the parting of the Red Sea, Jesus walking on water, raising, rising from the dead, you expect me to believe that? Yes, I do. Because, as I've said before, how do we know anything that took place in the ancient past, in history? How do we know if it happened or not? Well, it was written down. Somebody wrote it down. And that's how we know about Caesar's Gaelic Wars or whatever other thing from history. That's how we know it was written down. And nothing comes close to the Bible and to the life of Jesus in terms of history that has been recorded for us, that has been reliably passed down to us, so that we know that the Bible that we read in front of us today is a reliable copy of what was originally written. If you study text criticism, there, there is no historical document that even comes anywhere close to the Bible in terms of passing the test of textual criticism. I mean, some people might say, well, if Jesus came today, or even 10 years ago, and we were able to record it, and I could see the video, then I would believe. Come on, man. Have you seen the news about deep fake technology now? Thank God Jesus didn't come now. You're going to be looking at the videos in 50 years and people say, are you kidding me? Walking on water? Anybody can make that. My five-year-old kid can make that on the computer. Are you kidding me? Thank God Jesus came when he did. When he, I think that was the wisdom of God. Or if you're there and you read the Bible and you say, but still, believing that Jesus walked on water that God parted the Red Sea, that can't qualify as history. Well, if you are approaching, if you are using the supernatural as your litmus test, and you're saying that it can't be accepted as proof if it has anything supernatural in it, you are a priori already eliminating God from the equation. You're, you're, you're basically saying the supernatural can't exist, therefore, I can't believe what's written. In that, in that case, why even bother having a conversation? You're already saying from the beginning, God can't exist. You've already made up your mind. But if we use the evidence from history like we do for anything else, nothing comes close to the Bible. Jesus Christ rose from the dead. He is the Son of God. And God has given us proof of this and has been passed down to us throughout the generations. I'm not even going to get into all the evidence from general revelation, from Romans 1, the cosmological argument or the existence of morality or, or purpose in life and the value of human life. Those are all other arguments we can get into, but suffice it to say, Jesus had already told us. I told you already. The Bible already makes it clear based on the best evidence from history that Jesus rose from the grave. He is God. So my question is, if you're not a Christian, maybe you're wrestling with this this morning. Is it really a lack of evidence 
that's holding you back from believing him? Or is it perhaps something else? Maybe you haven't really looked into the evidence deeply. I would invite you to. And I think you will find that the evidence is compelling that Jesus is the Son of God. Now, he goes on and he says, but you do not believe because you are not among my sheep. My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me. So he goes back to this um, shepherd and sheep imagery from the first half of chapter 10. Uh, He was just talking about this, but the first half of chapter 10 happened probably during the Feast of Tabernacles. So at least a few months have passed by. But in terms of our reading, this happened in the earlier part of chapter 10. Jesus was using the imagery of sheep and shepherds, of thieves and robbers, of wolves and and sheep. That's the imagery he's going back to. And what he's saying here is, here's the real reason, religious leaders, that you don't believe in me. No matter how much I've told you, no matter how many of my works that you've seen, here's the real reason you don't believe. You are not my sheep. You're not my sheep. That's why you don't believe. This gets into the theology of um, uh, certain theological principles. We call them unconditional, unconditional election and irresistible grace. This is the teaching of the Bible, we believe, that basically says that we could do nothing. We could do nothing to choose God. Nobody can choose to believe in God. We are dead in our sin. We have rebelled against God. We want nothing to do with him. It took the Holy Spirit of God coming into our heart, reviving us and giving us new life so that we could believe in Jesus. It was nothing that we could do. God called to us. The shepherd called to us and the Holy Spirit resurrected our hearts so that we could hear and that we could respond. Um, Just a few chapters later in John, Jesus said to his disciples, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit and that your fruit should abide so that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he may give it to you. You didn't choose me, I chose you. Paul in Ephesians chapter two said, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. What these verses are saying here is that nobody, when, if you're a Christian, when we stand before God, we will, none of us will be able to say, you see God, I did something good. I'm partially responsible for standing before you this day because I chose you. I made the right decision. I chose to believe in you. I can pat myself in the back at least for that. None of us can do that. None of us have any reason for boasting. It is the grace of God alone that is the only reason we can stand before God. Because God chose us before the foundation of the world. Because God called us and enabled us to be able to respond. They were not listening because they were not Jesus' sheep. Um, Jesus says here as well, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, 
and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. I and the Father are one. See, here's another example here of Jesus' claim to to divinity. Um, The next verse, they pick up stones and they try to kill him again. So they understand here again, Jesus is saying is that he is God. Now, not only do his sheep hear his voice, those who are the sheep of Jesus, he gives us eternal life. That means we will never die. You say, Ulysses, that's ridiculous. Everybody dies. Yes, absolutely. Everybody dies. But that's the first death. That's not what Jesus is talking about. What he is talking about here is the second death. Anybody who believes in Jesus will not die the second death. Everybody will die the first death. Our bodies will fall apart. We will be in the grave. But we will all be resurrected and stand before God. And those of us who believe in Jesus, who have been forgiven of our sins through faith in the cross of Jesus Christ, we will live forever with God in the new heavens and the new earth. But anybody who has not put his faith in Jesus, who said, you know what? I'm good enough. I can answer for my sin on my own, or I'm not a sinner, or whatever it is that that you might be thinking, they will die the second death. And they will be apart from God in eternal, everlasting hell and torment as a punishment for their sin. That is the second death. That is the true death that every human being would want to avoid. Through faith in Jesus, you never die. You will never perish. And you know what else? This can never be taken away from you. Jesus says, no one can snatch them out of my hand. Uh, This goes back to the earlier part of chapter 10 again, when he was talking about the shepherding imagery. It's the wolf that comes to snatch the sheep out of the shepherd's hand. Jesus says, if you're my sheep, if you believe in me, your salvation is secure. Nothing could ever take that away from you. Nothing could ever snatch you out of my hands. Why? Why would faith in this man be so secure? He says, because my father has given you to me. He's greater than all. And you're also in the father's hands. Well, I thought we were in Jesus's hands. Well, he says, because I and the father are one. We are one God. If you are in the hands of Jesus, you are also in the hands of the Father, and nothing can take away your salvation. This is a a theological doctrine that we call perseverance. And this is one that uh, basically it says that if you're a Christian, you will persevere until the very end. Nothing can take away your salvation. I think that this is something that Christians, oftentimes we take for granted. We know that. Yeah, nothing can snatch me out of God's hands. My salvation is secure. But you know, like, if, if, we, if we think about this here, the wolf that snatches the sheep out of, you know, the shepherd's hand, he's the devil. His goal is to steal, kill, and destroy. The devil is a very powerful being. Very powerful. Now, we should not be afraid of the devil. We should not be scared of him in any way. But the devil is a very powerful being. And this is why so many cultures around the world are scared of the devil. Many cultures, many religions live with a sense of fear 
fear just, that just pervades their society and their daily life. And they need to do all these things to make sure that the devil doesn't come near, that the demons don't come near. They live with a lot of fear. As Christians, we take for granted the fact that, no, the devil can't touch me because I am held by God. This is such a wonderful truth of God. Paul said in Romans 8, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate you from God. Nothing. This is an amazing comfort, friends, that if you're a Christian and God is holding you in his hands, nothing can take you out of his hands. There's no power in this world. The the devil, nobody can snatch you out of God's hands. Nothing can separate you from his love. Isn't that comforting and encouraging to know? Sometimes we live with, a lot of us, you know, in this society, we live with a fear of, of losing, of being rejected, don't we? That if I love somebody, if I have friends in my life, what if they reject me? What if they leave me? What if they say they love me, but then one day they they don't love me anymore? I don't want to be hurt. So many people live with this fear and they close themselves off to people and and other things. Or maybe they close themselves off to God. Maybe. Like our brother Norman shared this morning, we do all these things to try to earn God's love, thinking that if I make mistakes, that if I fail, God won't love me anymore and he'll cast me off. He'll cast me aside. No, nothing, not even our failures can separate us from the love of God. I, you know, um, I shared this story a long time ago, I think. If you're in this church long enough, you're going to hear my stories over and over again. But, um, you know, I I think one of the things that really impacted me in my life when I was young was this this instance when um, a friend of mine, my best friend at the time, liked this girl and sent her a letter, wrote her a letter, folded up, origami style, I think, or something or another. This is way back in the day. This is like 80s, something like that. Elementary school or junior high. And he sent this letter and then, you know, everybody's all excited about this, right? Oh, what's going to happen? What's she going to say? End of the day, the courier comes, a friend of the girl with another letter. And it's, it's exciting, right? We've got to find out what happened. What happened? Is she, does she like you too? Does she, she want to get to know you too? And my friend, he opens up this letter to read it. And me, being the best friend, I'm like, yeah, I'm, I get a front row seat on this, right? So I come over and I'm like, oh yeah, I want to see. What happened? What happened? And then my friend, weirdly, kind of doesn't let me see. He kind of pulls away. But there are these other girls there who are like, oh, I want to see, I want to see. And he lets them see. And then I was like, oh, he's letting them see? But not me? Why? It's like dumb, right? It's junior high, right? Because he wanted to feel more special in that moment, probably. Something like that. But that really, really hurt me. That, that, that sense of rejection by somebody that I thought was a, such a close friend of mine, I think really left a lasting impression on me where for, for much of my life, one thing that I struggle with is I would struggle with feeling afraid of not being wanted. And so what I would often do is if there were like a party or something, and then people said, hey, Ulysses, why don't you come along to this party? 
I, I would be so scared that I wasn't really wanted there that I would go out of my way to not go and I would say, no, 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 you don't want me there. No, are you sure? No, I don't think you have enough, enough food. I think there's going to be too many people. I would make people go, no, no, Ulysses, no, no, we really want you. No, no, please, please come. Right? That's what I wanted. I wanted them to go, please come. The party will be a failure without you. And then I'll be like, oh, okay, all right, then I'll go. And, and I would do this, and I saw this in my heart because I was afraid of being rejected, of not being wanted. As so many of us, I don't know if any of you can relate to that. Come on. You all had this kind of stuff when you were growing up, right? And, 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 and I carried that in my life for much of my life. And, and there's probably still some residual of that in my life. But and that's why this, this truth of God, when, when it says nothing can separate us from the love of God. If you are God's sheep and you are in his hands, nothing will ever separate you from his love. No matter how, it, no matter what happens, no matter if people reject you, even if you're like Job, his, his wife said, curse God and die, she, you know, and, and, and forget this. And if my own wife, who will never leave me, amen, were to leave me, <laughs> you know, totally hypothetically, God will never leave me. God will never leave me. I am secure in his hands, in his love as his child. This is a wonderful Wonderful, beautiful thing to be his sheep. Now, now this, this doesn't mean we take, this, take the grace of God for granted. One thing you can do, even though the devil can't snatch you out of God's hands, is you can walk away. You can walk away from God. You could say, forget this shepherd, and you can walk away, and maybe one day find yourself not in the flock of God. You say, well, how could that be if I'm in God's hands? Well, if you, if you walk away, what it really means, the, the theological summary is that you never were his sheep to begin with, right? So this is why the Bible says we need to finish the race. We need to, to stick with this shepherd of ours and walk with him. But even when we fail, even when we make mistakes, God will never let you go out of his hands. It is wonderful to be in the flock of this shepherd. Now, so as I said, the Jews picked up stones again to stone him. They know clearly what he's saying. He's God. Jesus answered them, I have shown you, okay, this is, pay, pay attention here because this is a really difficult passage here. I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? The Jews answered him, it is not for a good work that we're going to stone you, but for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Okay, that's all clear, right? Again, they understood that Jesus is divine. Now, here's where things get really tricky. Jesus answered them, is it not written in your law? I said, you are gods. If he called them gods to whom the word of God came and scripture cannot be broken, do you say of him whom the father consecrated and sent into the world, you are blaspheming because I said, I am the son of God? What is going on here? So, okay, so the Jews are really, ups- the, the religious leaders are really upset at himself for calling himself God, right? They're really upset about this. So <clears throat> what does Jesus do? Jesus pulls Psalm 82 out of his back pocket. This really esoteric, like Psalm 82, man, he knew his Bible, right? He pulls Psalm 82 out of his back pocket. In it, it says, 
Is it not written in your law? He says, I said you are gods. So what's happening in Psalm 82? In Psalm 82, what's happening is God is calling the judges of Israel gods. Okay, now I I know this is really, it's only eight verses long. I just want us to look at this so we can kind of have a better shot at understanding or trying to understand what Jesus is saying here. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, he holds judgment. So people have asked, who are these gods? God is in the middle of these gods holding judgment. Who are these gods? Some people have said they're demons, they're principalities, these evil powers. I don't think it's very convincing. I think most theologians don't think it's very convincing. I'm not going to get into it too deeply. Some people have said he's referring to the people of Israel as a whole. Possible. Not bad. Because, you know, when God said to Pharaoh, let Israel go and worship me in the desert, he's my firstborn son. That's my son. You've got in slavery there. We're children of God, sons of God. If you want to go back to even Adam and Eve in the garden, we were made in the image of God. No other animals, no other plants were made in the image of God. We're special sons of God. So some people say, I think he's referring to to people by saying gods, like we're made in God's image. Thirdly, this is what most people think, and this is what I think is probably most convincing. God is calling the judges of Israel, people who are supposed to adjudicate things, gods. Why? Because they were charged with, with using the word of God properly and judging between disputes and, and representing God, representing his word and, and justice to all the people. So in this sense, he calls them gods with a lowercase g because they were representing him. I think it makes sense. So in the midst of the gods, he holds judgment like a play on words. In the midst of the judges, he holds judgment. He's judging the judges. Why? How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. Makes sense, right? Seems like, yeah, judges. Don't be a corrupt judge. You're you're totally desecrating what it means to be a judge. Be a righteous judge. They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. Yeah, the found if if they're leading, if they're being corrupt, that's darkness for the land, and the foundations of the earth are shaking. Society will crumble when there's no justice. It'll become lawless, lawlessness everywhere. I said, you are gods, you are judges, you you represent me, sons of the most high, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. In other words, don't forget who you are. Don't let this get to your head. Don't abuse your position. You're just a man, you judges. And, And because of your sin, you will die as well. And then a prophetic word in verse 8 here. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. We await the true judge, the perfect judge of all the world to come in the second coming of Christ. That's what we are waiting for. So what, now, if you're, if you're reading, so what is Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, hey, you got a problem with, with calling me, with me calling myself the son of God? Look, in the Old Testament, God even called human judges gods, okay? Now, if you're reading carefully, that argument's not that great. (laughs) Because we know that, okay, Jesus, but 
God called those judges gods, lowercase g, but we all know they were human. We all know they were human. Nobody is thinking they're actually gods. But you're saying you are divine. Apples and oranges. This doesn't really work, Jesus. So what in the world is Jesus saying then? Why is he using Psalm 82? Okay, so this is what I think he's doing here. And this is, this is why, why this is tricky. I think Jesus is saying this. Okay, he's saying, okay, listen, guys, you have a problem with me calling myself son of God? With me calling myself God? You got a problem with titles? Look, if you want to talk about titles, even humans had the title God back in the day. God called the judges gods. Why did he do that then? Look, look, if you got a problem with titles, what about that? How much more, if human judges could be called gods, how much more should me, the actual son of God, be called God? And then look at what he does. He said, the one that the father consecrated. Consecrated means what? Set apart. The son of God who was set apart. What was the context of Jesus being here in Jerusalem at this time? The feast of what? Dedication. What does that mean? Dedication means when you set something apart, right? The temple was being dedicated again. It was being consecrated. It was being made holy and set apart again for God and not for Zeus. John doesn't use the word consecrated a lot. Jesus is saying, the son of God who was consecrated, how much more should I be able to be called God? Jesus is the fulfillment of the feast of dedication. Just like John shows he is the fulfillment of all these feasts again and again and again throughout his gospels. So Jesus is saying, how much more should I be able to have that title? But, but, let's forget the title stuff. Verse 37, if I am not doing the works of my father, then do not believe me. Okay, let's move on from the title stuff. Let's go back again to my works, okay? It's not just about the title and what I call myself. It's about what I do. You have seen my works. I have told you, and I've already done them before you. Countless works. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I am in the Father. Again, they sought to arrest him, but he escaped from their hands. I think that's what Jesus is doing here. He kind of stumps them for a moment there. They're like, yeah, why did God call judges gods? But then he says, you know what? I'm not just going to rest my case there. Look at the works that I do. I have more than proven that I deserve the title son of God. Let me conclude here. In the final verses here, it says, he went away across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him and they said, John did no sign. But everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. This is, like I said, the end of this section. The end of the earthly ministry of Jesus in, in, in the majority of it. When we see him again in chapter 11, it's his final time coming to Jerusalem before he goes to the cross. It's a very short amount of time. John is concluding his, the majority of his three and a half years of ministry here with these verses. Jesus, so what, he went back to the Jordan where John had been baptizing. What's the significance of that? He went back to where it all began. He went back to where it all began. 
and he would not return to Jerusalem until it was time to go to the cross. John makes it clear that John the Baptist, he did no sign. The people understood that John did no sign. But Jesus said about John the Baptist, among those born of women has not arisen anyone greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because he pointed people to Jesus. Friends, Christians, you know, even as continuationists, as, as Christians, you know, our church, we believe in the, the spiritual gifts. We believe God speaks today. We believe God can heal people. We believe in miracles. We believe God can do those things today. Even as continuationists, I'm not claiming that we can do signs like Jesus as, as much as he does and as amazingly as he does them. I don't claim that we can do that. But we can, like John the Baptist, point others to Jesus even when we do no signs. Friends, if you are not a Christian this morning, I want to ask you, will you respond to this message or maybe to, uh, if a friend brought you to church or if anybody has ever told you about Jesus or if you've read the Bible, all those signs that are pointing to Jesus, will you respond? Will you heed the shepherd's voice? At the end of this chapter, the feeling that you get is that it is too late for these religious leaders. When Jesus returns, they crucify him. He goes to the cross. But people here are still coming to him. Many are coming to him to believe. Friends, you still have the opportunity. Oh, how do I know I'm, I'm God's sheep? I don't know. Don't worry about that. Respond to his call. Respond to my voice that is speaking in behalf of God, respond to the Bible. God is inviting you into his flock and to be one of his sheep. Will you respond to his call?